December 2017. Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. So I'll, I'll, I'll just start when we're in the bar, yeah? Sure, yeah. Okay, so we, we are, I'm in this burger bar in Sydney. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> I'm in this burger bar in Brisbane. I'm in this burger... Oh, it's, no it's way, hard. It's, yeah. it's hard. It's super hard. <laughs> Whoa. Uh. I think it's a difficult story to tell and, and perhaps also to follow because it's got so many layers in it. That's Hawken. Hawken Hoidel. He's an investigative journalist, and he's based in Oslo. Uh, you got the, the story about how me and Einar found the server of this site. Uh, you got the story of, uh, of the police operation, and you have the story about the people behind the site itself on the darknet. Hawken writes for a paper called Verdensgang. It's famous in Norway. Famous enough that everyone there just calls it by its initials. VG. And also, well, you have the, the story on, about the arrest itself. So it's, um, it's got several layers to it. Hawken originally broke this story. Talking about it usually isn't an issue. But for some reason, this time around, it's kind of messing with him. Sorry. And it, it's also a difficult story because of the, the subject. Uh, it is a tough subject, for sure. But I don't think that's really the issue. Hawkins used to covering nasty subjects. What's messing with him, I think, is that he's self-conscious. He's used to telling this story from the outside. He's not used to being a character in it. And what he's telling me now is the story behind that story. The biggest story of his career. So I, I'm in this burger bar in, in Brisbane. Uh, it's lunchtime. And it's really, really crowded. And I'm there with uh, two other guys. Two other guys he's only just met. Hawkins trying to get a read on them, trying to size them up. John, he seemed to be like the, the younger one. He had blonde hair, perfect teeth, firm handshake, and looked very, you know, rather lean and, and, and well, fit. And, and Paul, the other guy... He also, I mean, he looked like he had been doing handiwork uh, a lot and and looked like a robust guy. I mean, they both looked like they've been working out. So the kind of guys you probably don't want to upset, which is a problem, because Hawkins flown all the way from Oslo to do just that, to confront them about what they've been up to. But I was a bit surprised that they wanted to take me out to to have lunch because I told them that, you know, I got some information that I need to talk to you about. So I was hoping that we could meet at an office 
because this wasn't some, some information that I wanted to share with everyone. It's the kind of information that can destroy reputations, families, lives. I'm quite nervous because we are in this open bar with a lot of other people, uh, noisy. We have to talk quite loud uh, to be able to, to hear each other. And I'm about to tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running the largest child abuse website on the darknet. This is the story of the men who operate in the most disturbing corners of the internet. It's the story of the police who track down those men, who hunt undercover in the dark. And it's the story of the reporters who try to shed light on this hidden underworld. My name is Damon Fairless, and this is Hunting Warhead. I've just arrived in Oslo. Hi, Hauken. It's Damon. How are you? I'm... Yeah, we're in the lobby. Fantastic. Great. It's the first time I'm meeting Hauken. Hi. Hey. It's really nice to see person, man. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hauken is slim and tall. He's about 6'6", and he's in his late 40s. But there's still something boyish about him. Maybe it's his enthusiasm. Maybe it's his unruly blonde hair. Finally you're here. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to find out more about the Australians. The guys running the largest child pornography site on the dark web. Okay, you'll have to uh, sign in. Okay. You're visiting VG. And you're from CDC. I'm also here because even though this is a crime that spans the globe, it's also a Canadian story. One, you first. Okay. So much uh, security. Okay, so this is my floor. VG's offices are four floors of clean lines, glass windows, and open concept workstations. It's part modern newsroom, part IKEA catalog. Yeah, this is the main Among other things, Hawken investigates the scariest places on the internet including the very worst kind of online abuse, child pornography. Hawken and I share some common ground and some common beliefs. I've spent the past few years researching and writing about extremely violent men, including dangerous sexual offenders. My interest lies in understanding the deep motivations of the people who commit serious acts of violence. Essentially, what interests me is forensic psychology. It's natural to want to turn away from uncomfortable stories. I get that, and I respect it. The problem is, you can't change what you don't understand, and you can't possibly understand the stories you avoid. So, like Hulkin, the more I've come to understand just how prevalent and how destructive child pornography is, the more compelled I am to cover it, as a journalist, but also as a father. That said, you don't just wake up one morning and dive headfirst into the worst places on the internet. For Hawken, it was more of a step-by-step descent. 
one that began about six years ago. In 2013, uh, a colleague of mine got a tip about a website where there was, uh, a w- well, a website for revenge porn. Mm. And, and that it would be possible to to identify some, some of these guys who had uh, published uh, these images. Back in 2012, hackers across the world had started breaking into people's iCloud accounts. Celebrities are being hacked. Hunger Games star Jennifer Lawrence, model Kate Upton have both been exposed. Personal photos for the world to see. And just- iCloud was notoriously easy to crack at the time. Guys would break into women's accounts and post their pictures on so-called revenge porn sites. And let's be clear, revenge porn isn't pornography, nor is it revenge. It's online abuse by anonymous trolls. Some of these women were ex-girlfriends. Some were famous. But most of them were total strangers. A lot of the pictures these guys stole were intimate and personal. So Hulken and one of his colleagues, Julia Ingebrigtsen, published an expose on one of these revenge porn sites. So it was one of the first articles about revenge porn, mm-hmm. I think. The story was critical of the Norwegian police, and of the government too, for not cracking down on revenge porn, despite the disproportionately high numbers of Norwegian users on these sites. And uh, that's when I got, in, I got an email a couple of weeks uh, after that from a, from a man. He wrote an email, you know, I'm, I'm really annoyed. I've been trying to get in touch with, with you guys at VG for a long time now. I've been trying to email all these different guys and no one is answering me. And aren't you interested in what I'm having to offer? And this guy who had this tip, this hacker, he was, uh, he was Einar. Okay. Yeah. And so your first contact with Einar was through this annoyed email. Annoying email, yeah. <laughs> My name is Einar Otto Stangvik. Meet Einar. The way I recall this is that I was annoyed by something they wrote that I felt was incorrect. So I sent this annoyed email to both uh, Arkona and Julia, pointing out that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is garbage, whatever. And I think that testifies to my general frustration at the time as well. So we... Einar is a big part of this story. He's the hacker Hulken was talking about. Although hacker isn't a term Einar's crazy about. When I see hacker in the media, that usually means just that someone who breaks something down, breaks in somewhere. And that isn't the brand that I would want to have on, on my, my persona because that's not what I'm doing. I'm just, I try to come up with solutions. I try to build things, I try to fix things, not, not tear them down as such. So I, I just feel it, it doesn't describe me very well. It's, it's just imprecise. But in a lot of ways, Einar is the typical hacker. Hyper-focused, logical, super methodical. But he's not all stereotypes. He's also stylish, fit, emotionally sophisticated, and highly self-aware. Back when Einar sent that email to Hawken, he was working a job he couldn't stand. I was getting depressed with my whole like career choice. What am I doing here? What is this? Why am I like selling made-up solutions to to non-existent problems and so forth? I eventually figured that I have to do something meaningful with with whatever knowledge I'd amassed up until then, and so I sat down one day and read some articles and saw that well iCloud hacks, that's, that seems to be the thing now. So that sort of left a lingering feeling that, well, hey, maybe this is something that I can do something with. So that's 
Einar decides to take on some of these guys, to hack the hackers. But like right around Christmas 2012, I started building a system that would monitor these different sort of shady forums for newly posted images. Einar's system downloads the metadata from pictures that were being put up on the revenge porn sites. So not the pictures themselves, but the information about those pictures. File names, when the shot was taken, GPS coordinates. So through, I'd say a week or so, I'd amassed millions upon millions of these metadata collections. That's the haystack. But Einar's looking for a needle. He builds another program, this one, automatically like detect which GPS locations it found was in Norway. And... Most of the Norwegian photos aren't hacked. In fact, most of them are completely tame. But then Einar's system flags something. A posting with, I believe, like 15 pictures from uh, what seemed like different girls. Not like totally explicit pictures, but obviously private. The same guy posting a response to another person like further down the thread said, who says that the girls know that I have those photos? iCloud, dot, dot, dot. And so it, it felt like I'd hit exactly the sort of posting that, that I was looking for. And I now creates a few user accounts, different personas, and he uses these personas to manipulate the site administrators. Eventually, he gets one of them to reveal an IP address, which Einar uses to identify the man who originally posted those 15 stolen photos. Uh, Einar was running a full-fledged undercover operation, entirely on his own. And it's around this time that he reads Hawkins' article on revenge porn and fires off his disgruntled email, pointing out the inaccuracies in the story. But I, Hawkins, was friendly in his reply, uh, and and they fixed the article, I think, and uh, and he invited me over for coffee, and I sat down with him and presented like the whole story. The whole story is pretty incredible. The guy Einar identified was a 24-year-old man named Tor Johannes Helleland. Helleland was a local politician in Drammen. That's a city in southern Norway. Also, both of Helleland's parents are high-ranking members of Norway's National Conservative Party. And a number of the women whose photos he had hacked were members of the youth wing of the party. So it was a political bombshell. I wrote two reports, 40, 50, 60, I don't know, pages long, detailing all of my communication with the different people, the administrator, the forums, um, and detailing my operation, how I found what I found and what I found. Like everything. And I was also... Einar had shared these reports with two of the women whose photos had been stolen. And he encouraged them to go to the police. They did, but the cops dismissed both cases. But I, I tried reaching out to the police at that point, and, and they basically said that, well, hey, we're not going to investigate this, no matter what, so whatever to call somewhere else. The police weren't interested in pursuing the case. But Hawken? Hawken was super interested. Well, I mean, I I was really happy that he contacted me because, I mean, obviously you saw that it was a crazy story. But sure. uh, No, and I, I remember telling the story and I felt that... I managed to tell an exciting and interesting story. 
and you seem to think that it was really interesting as well. Uh, but I, I'm not sure if you if you were willing to give me your name. I mean, I don't think you no, no, no. gave me your name in the first uh, emails. I was, I suppose, somewhat afraid of being both investigated by police for coming even close to that sort of thing. I mean, I, I had no idea. I, I, I know I wanted to remain anonymous, but for the story to be credible, how could needed Einar to go on the record? It was a big, big leap. Yeah, and then we got you on the front page. Yeah. Ja, superhacker. Bare noen dager senere innrømmet 24 år gamle Tor Johannes Helleland fra Drammen at det var han som hadde gjort det. And a couple of days later, the politician was forced by his political party to come forward. So he published a press release where he apologized and so forth. And the state attorney also made it clear that the police in Drammen should investigate, and they did, and they eventually found that well, there were more than 30 girls that he'd either hacked by guessing passwords or getting to log on to their accounts on his computer and then logging their passwords. So he was notorious. He was like, and he hacked left and right. Helleland had hacked the accounts of 30 young women, none of whom were underage. And he ended up serving one month in jail. VG's recently contacted Helleland through text and email, informing him that his case is mentioned in this podcast. He hasn't replied. Helleland's political career was over. But Hawken and Einar's working relationship? That was just getting started. I mean, so you've yeah. probably heard of, of, of the site. And, yeah, uh, totally. So it isn't much of a surprise to anyone that there's a lot of um, lot of stuff. Here's stating the obvious. The web can lead you down some rabbit holes. So we just back up to the main menu. So, yeah, if we look at the different boards, we've got anime, cute, uh, cute, male, flash, weapons, auto, science and math, LGBT, uh, pony. And those rabbit holes have rabbit holes. You had clicked on random? Yeah. Okay. So this board is pretty random. There are a lot of different things. And those rabbit holes have rabbit holes too, which can lead to some pretty terrifying places. Um, and and there photos. are different threads for, I don't know, so this what is got here? likely uh, someone falling onto train tracks or something. Right. Uh, is... Einar's showing me around 4chan. It's one of the sites he was monitoring when he was working on the revenge porn story. You've probably heard of it. It's the internet equivalent of public washroom graffiti. Revenge porn aside, you'll find all kinds of garbage spewed across its forums. These threads often spin into, like, the posting of pictures of people who wouldn't want to be on this site. So that's the thing. People here often tread on a thin line towards what's uh, illegal and not. Like, she looks quite young. That is certainly on some line somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned earlier that when Einar was infiltrating the revenge porn sites, he used one of his online personas to get close to the forum's administrator. Well, that guy ended up recruiting Einar, or Einar's persona, because he needed help deleting the deluge of illegal images that was constantly being posted. And he started talking about like the problems he was facing as this revenge porn administrator and 
his, his daily business, the people who, who was giving him a hard time. And some of these people were and people who advertised for different file hosting services where their selling point was that, well, on our services, you can find these pictures and, and there would be girls where you'd understand immediately that that, that girl isn't 18, she, she isn't 20, she's more like 11 or, mm. or something. So I started talking to Hakon about what I saw as, as, as a problem on the clearnet uh, and, and how available the child abuse material apparently was on the clearnet. Uh, it's worth understanding a few terms. So clearnet to open web is everything that you can find through. The clearnet accounts for about 10% of what's on the internet. The deep web is the other 90%. All the stuff you can't access through web browsers. So password protected pages, encrypted sites, that sort of thing. There's also the dark web. Now that's part of the deep web too, but it's also sort of its own beast. It's something we're going to get into more later. For now, all you need to know is that Einar had gone down enough clearnet rabbit holes to know that there was a lot of child pornography squirreled away across that 10% of the web we all use every day. I started talking about this problem to, to, to Hakon in, I think, August or September 2013. And so we were like tossing ideas back and forth for a couple of months before we actually... Einar was confident he could find guys downloading this stuff. Hawken was eager to jump on the opportunity. Yeah, uh, I mean, my first reaction was, you know, oh my God, now we will be finally able to identify these guys and, and then go knock on their doors and talk to them. Not after they've been arrested, but while they're actually in the acts, more or less, of, of downloading. Around this time, VG offered Einar a full-time job. So he and Hawken got to work. The sites Einar had been monitoring all had records of the files that had been downloaded. In some cases, those records were associated with the usernames, email addresses, and IP addresses of the people doing the downloading, meaning they could be tracked. Einar focused on files downloaded to Norwegian IP addresses. So now he and Hauken had a large batch of files they suspected were child pornography, but they had to confirm this. So we decided quite early that we can't look at these images ourselves. <laughs> so, so we turned off image downloading. We didn't download any images ourselves on our computers. We just dealt with with the file names and talked to the Norwegian NCIS, police, yeah. yeah, the police, and got help from them in identifying some of the uh, file names. They told us, you know, okay, this file name it's regular porn. Uh, this is child abuse. So they would open them and tell you what was in them, or they had a way of doing this. Yeah, they they have a list. Uh, the police uh, of, of file names of files that they, they know already are child abuse files. And some of these files they also opened uh, to take a look at, but uh, that was a handful, I think. And, and from this small batch of files that we knew contained child abuse material, I not, he was able to build this filter to find, find other, uh, oh, okay. other files that also contain abuse, uh, child oh, okay. abuse material. So he used in the end, Einar wound up with about 5,500 files, downloaded from about 300 Norwegian users. From there, it was straightforward internet sleuthing. Some of the people we just found by Googling. It's amazing how people, they, they use the same, same email address many places, or if they use it just a couple of places, then we'd be able to track them. Or they use the same username on Skype or WhatsApp or some other mm. platform. Some were rather easy to find, some were difficult. And we 
were able to identify, I think it was 70 people of those users, just by searching for their usernames, uh, looking up their, their email addresses, things like that. Hawken knew he could get hold of these men now, but there were a few ethical considerations. I mean, uh, first of all, uh, how do we contact a guy and tell him, I know about your most terrible secret? Do we go to their door? If so, who's going to answer? Uh, do they have a family? Is his wife uh, going to answer and, and start wondering why, why are the journalists here? Should we call them on the phone? And also, would they commit suicide just by knowing that we knew this? So I, I talked to psychologists to understand, you know, is this safe for, for the downloaders uh, that we contact them? And the psychologists, they told us, most of these guys, when they are confronted with what they do, they want to talk. They are really scared, but they are also grateful that they finally have, have an opportunity to talk to people about this. Hmm. So we decided, okay, we'll find, and find a way to contact them. So Hawkins starts making calls. So what I did was I found out 10 o'clock in the morning, that's the best time. Because your spouse most probably is at work. It's a time of day when people are alone or, or, or doing something without their family. So 10 o'clock, that's when I called them. By now, Hawkins' editors knew he and Einar were onto a big story. One of VG's videographers, Natalie Remo, started making a documentary about their work. Uh, I called them and told them, you know, I'm, hi, you know, I'm uh, Hawkins Edel from from VG. Uh, I got information which uh, I really, really need to, to present to you. And I can't talk about it on the phone, but I need to meet you. Hopefully today or tomorrow, can we meet outside? Because we needed to meet outside. And before I called them, we had found a place, for instance, uh, in a park. Hawkins editor at the time was a guy named Tori Pedersen. That's his voice. Pedersen's big worry was that one of these men might get violent. He gave Hawkins strict orders to do these interviews in public spaces. Einar and Natalie would hide at a distance. They'd film and take photos, and also just be ready to call the cops, just in case things went sideways. The absurdity of that situation would be, would be next level. I remember like hiding in the bushes and sneaking around there and trying to, on one hand, pay attention if you pull a knife on Hawkon or something, uh, and also trying to photograph it. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bear Brook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. How many guys did you contact? Ten. 
10 guys. Yeah. And did you meet with all 10? I met all of them, actually. Yeah. Okay. It's the most interesting meetings I've had with people. I don't think I'll ever have uh, more interesting meetings. Uh, Why? What was so interesting? I guess it's because... One thing is, I, I, I really wanted to, to try to understand why did they want to download child abuse material. Some of them were able to tell me that, and I, I learned a lot, really. Hawken learned a lot about these men's psychology. Specifically, he learned a lot about denial. So some people said, oh, I didn't do it, but I, I mean, that's just silly. Come on, we know you did it. And but they and then they told us, oh, well, I was searching for a movie like Mission Impossible, and then for some reason uh, the file turned out to be child abuse material. And then we could say, no, we know that the file that you downloaded is called 12-year-old blowjob, for instance. It's not Mission Impossible. It's not just something that you randomly fall into. It's not like you, you, you know, trip on your keyboard and then all of a sudden, magically, this website uh, opens up and downloads some child abuse material for you. you. There are many steps you have to go through before these files are downloaded. I mean, you have to register your username, your email address, everything. So through all of these steps, you have the possibility to think, is this something I really want to do? And they have decided, yes, 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 I want to do this. So we knew that they were doing it on purpose, but they, they tried to deny it anyway. But Hawken pushed back with questions. And in the end, seven of the ten men he spoke with admitted to actively seeking out child pornography. You know, for some of the guys, it's some sort of uh, uh, extreme sport, mental extreme sport. You know, how much shit can I watch? They downloaded beheadings and every kind of uh, terrible things just to, to see how much their, their brains could deal with. Um, and, you know, they were either alcoholics or did drugs also. So they had this addiction problem already. Did you ask them at all whether they had experienced any sexual abuse or trauma? Yes. Yeah, a couple of them told me that they had probably experienced something. But, I, I mean, the other eight, they, they hadn't experienced anything. So it's... Uh, you can't, you can't use that as, as an excuse. Did any of them explicitly talk about pedophilia, being attracted to children as the main cause? No, all of them told me I'm not a pedophile. All of them told all me that. All of them said yeah. that they're not a pedophile. Yeah. This is a really telling detail. It says something about the nature of these men, about the state of denial they're in. But I want to touch on one particular finding for a second. Researchers at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto have found compelling evidence suggesting that well over half of the guys who look at child pornography are preferential pedophiles. That means that these are men who are specifically and often exclusively attracted to children. So the fact that none of the men Hawken interviewed admit to being a pedophile suggests a lot of them are lying. Lying to Hauken or lying to themselves. Oh yeah, so, uh, so, sorry, can yeah. I, I just, um, I just noticed sometimes when you, when you, you use the, the term child pornography. Instead of child abuse material. Yeah. So yeah. I just. I know Hauken used the term child abuse, as in child abuse images, child abuse materials, instead of child pornography. 
and so do most cops and researchers. Uh, yeah, for good reason. If you use the term child pornography, then that's a term describing the images as seen from the abuser's point of view. That this is uh, images made to, to, you know, sexually arouse people. But uh, that's not what they are. They are images of child abuse. So that's how we need to talk about them. And once you've seen those images, you can't unsee them. Once they're in your head, they can mess with you. And this is something that's important to keep in mind if you want to understand a little more about Einar. From early childhood until I was 19, I think. I was, I was living in a very deep woods. And so with the computer as my basically only friend. And, and When Einar was about 14 or so, he takes a trip from his home deep in rural Norway to a big computer conference. Back then, CD burners were the hot tech item. Einar had just bought one. It's expensive. And so, to make back some of that money, he takes it with him to the conference, and he sets up shop backing up people's hard drives. And, and I obviously wouldn't look through the things that people gave to me. I just burned copies, burned backups, backups, backups. And I slept in a sleeping bag in my chair while I burned those CDs. By the end of the week, he's made some cash. He takes the CD burner back home with him, and also a bunch of used CDs. So I got back home, and at the time, I'd say like one in 10 CDs or so would just be damaged in some way. My experience had been that some of the CDs that were damaged could be reused. So I went through the CDs and thought, well, maybe you can burn something else on the rest of it. And one of the CDs turned out to be the most nightmarish stuff that I've seen. I open it on my computer and like immediately what pops up is it's an image folder. I saw what was a kid, likely a girl, who was like back down on the floor or pavement, I don't know, with what looked like a skiing pole, tying the legs up and back, like exposing him her. That just stuck with me something fierce for like many years. And I think going back into like these kind of projects, that's that's started. I so I have a photographic memory. My memory works. I I can like I see the thumbnails now when I when I speak of them. And going back into these projects stirs all of these old memories that you aren't supposed to have there to begin with. Einar is clenching his jaws while he's telling me this. I believe him when he says he still sees these pictures. He looks haunted. How can an Einar work in this story for close to a year? VG runs it as a major feature in the summer of 2015. Now keep in mind, VG is the most widely read news site in the country. It averages about 2 million readers a day. Norway's entire population is just over 5 million. So the story does what every journalist hopes their stories will do. It gets people talking. I think it became at least obvious to both the public and the police that this is, uh, this is a real problem and that we, we need to deal with it. So in the last couple of years, more and more local police districts have established their own task forces specifically to combat online child abuse. It also got the attention of a few readers who Hocken wasn't expecting to hear from. 
but I, I found it really interesting to see that also people who identified as pedophiles or people, other guys who were downloading child abuse images, they also found our articles important and helpful for them. Like this guy who contacted me and told me that this is the first time that anyone had been able to write about his problems in a way that he could relate to it. So he contacted me and, and was really frustrated because he was really worried about himself. He didn't want to have these feelings. He didn't want to feel these desires uh, towards children. He didn't want to download child abuse material. But he still found that, you know, he did it and that he felt a desire towards children. And he was, um, although he told me he hadn't done anything, he was really scared about what he might do. Mm. And he had... Uh, searched for help but I mean Norway is a small country and he was living in a very small community he couldn't tell his doctor because everyone knows everyone there so he was uh, stuck with his feelings by himself mm. and he still is so say you're a social pariah and you can't get help or you believe you can't what do you do well some men follow a particular path they go down all the rabbit holes the clearnet has to offer, and eventually they find themselves overlooking the biggest rabbit hole of all, the dark web. Many of the sites that we looked into in, uh, in relation to the downloader story were hinting at these sites on the dark web as well. So there would be links to dark websites and mention of, of dark websites on blogs and message boards. And simply put, it's an encrypted web within the web that's designed to be hidden from surveillance, hidden from people trying to monitor what's going on there, trying to censor the stuff that's on there. There's a lot of mystique surrounding the dark web, but really it's just a bunch of hidden websites. To navigate them, you need a specialized browser called Tor. Now, there are plenty of non-sketchy, completely legal sites on Tor. Places to share photos, opinions, recipes, places to sell and buy things, places for fan fiction and politics, none of them any more disturbing than what you'll find on the clearnet. But then there are plenty of disturbing sites too. The real site, if you go looking for the dark markets and uh, try to find a hitman for hire and you're likely just going to lose your Bitcoin. And then there obviously are the child abuse sites and various other sorts of sexual abuse sites as well, but but the child abuse scene has been fairly active and thriving there for, for many years now. Some of, of the sites are dedicated to sort of self-help, how to control the urges, how to accept that you're a pedophile, but at the same time try to curb your desires. And then they go even further in many cases and, and go beyond sort of opening up on their deepest, darkest secrets to give descriptions of specific abuse, specific things they've done, and also to provide, obviously, photos, videos of, of that abuse. And then there are sites that are dedicated to just enabling people. There are sites with huge uh, collections of texts, even books, ebooks on how to be a successful abuser, how to hide yourself from law enforcement, how to hide yourself from, from your family, and so forth.
A big part of the dark web's appeal is that it offers these men something they can't find anywhere else. A subculture of like-minded people. And it is almost entirely men, by the way. Women account for less than 1% of the people interested in child pornography. So, Einar started monitoring what was happening on the dark web. Håkon, who, who was reading through, uh, through one of the forums on the dark web and saw a reference to the downloaders. Einar's talking about the downloaders, the 10 men in the story he and Håkon had published. And, and they were discussing them uh, or describing them as clear net losers or some such, I don't know. It said, it said, it, it said more like um, these guys who were identified were the idiots on the clear net. The people who are uh, taken all the time. Darkness is still uh, safe and sound, and I'm proud to be a member of a worldwide movement of child lovers. So it was really a middle finger to to our work, and you know, just fuck you, and uh, and you won't be able to find us. And it, so we, we took that uh, as a challenge. Okay, you claim that we can't identify and we can't take you just because you're on the darknet. Uh, let's see if we can do that. So Einar and Haken get clearance from their editors to start tracking some of the dark web users. Einar creates a few different user accounts on different child abuse websites. So he's configured his browser settings so he's not actually able to see any of the images, but he can read all the text on these pages, all of the comments about the images, diatribes, confessions. And in reading this stuff, he starts to get a lay of the land, who the players are. He also identifies three or four of the biggest and most popular sites. And among these, one stands out. Child's Play seemed to be the biggest of them. Child's Play. The site has over a million registered user profiles. Einar starts keeping tabs on the site. He focuses on messages posted by Norwegian users. And almost immediately, he discovers something awful. Uh, and, and we identified a Norwegian who was, he was bragging about uh, abusing a younger, younger boy. I've read the post Einar's talking about, and I'll spare you the details. But the guy admitted to abusing an 11-year-old, in part by promising the kid a toy, a very specific toy. The guy went by a unique username on Child's Play. Hawken quickly found someone with an almost identical username on Skype and Facebook. On the Facebook page, there was a photo of that same very specific toy mentioned on the Child's Play post. It was circumstantial evidence, but it was enough. How can an INR had an ethical obligation? Yeah. So, so we had to take that to the police because this was ongoing abuse. Uh, so. The police took the information and started an investigation. INR and Hawken now knew that they could successfully hunt for users on the dark web. But users are small game. How can an INR were after larger prey? So you're interested in finding out who ran these sites, the administrators. Child's Play was this growing beast on the dark net. Yeah. How did you identify the, the administrator of Child's Play? What did you know about him? Yeah, what we knew about the administrator on, on Child's Play was uh, his name. Well, not his name, his username, uh, which was Warhead. Warhead. Yeah, that's uh, the only thing we knew about him. And you wanted to go after him? Yeah. I've never been 
uncertain that we could unmask people on the dark web. I mean, it's all about effort. It's all about how much time you're willing to, to spend on it. Anyone, everyone can be unmasked if you're, you're uh, willing to, to put the time and resources into it. That's at least my experience. Einar starts investing the time and resources. Child's Play was run off a modified version of some common open source software, the kind ClearNet hosting sites use too, meaning Einar had a set of blueprints to work with. Luckily, I mean, for us and for law enforcement, people don't often know exactly how to fiddle with it to make it really secure. So I, I just uh, pretty quickly came up with a couple of ideas of how I could potentially poke some more information out of those sites. So Einar starts poking and prodding and looking for weaknesses. It was uh, January 5th, 2017, when I get a, a message from, from Einar. We had just had Christmas holidays and uh, it was late in the evening. And I remember I was at home uh, folding clothes. Uh, Einar tells me, uh, just very matter of fact, just writes, well, I think I've identified uh, the site of the server of, of Child's Play. Einar had located the server at a hosting facility in Sydney, Australia, a place called Digital Pacific. And I'm, my God, how? How is that possible? It shouldn't be possible. It's, it's, it is impossible to do that. That's, that's the entire meaning of, of, of dark web, that you're not supposed to be able to track down the location of the servers. It should be impossible. Were you incredulous? Did you not believe him? Or did yeah, you... Sure, I be of course I believed him. <laughs> As I said, he can do he can do whatever he wants online. So I mean, I'm really amazed that he was able to do that, but uh, still not surprised because when he sets his mind onto something, he he does it. It might take some time, but he does it. Um, yeah, he had just done some magic. That magic involved reading the hosting software's source code in its entirety. And that's how we found a weakness. Like many websites, Child's Play allowed you to upload an image to your user profile. I now noticed that if that image originated from somewhere on the ClearNet, then the Child's Play software would reach out and look for it. Meaning the site would send a brief signal from its hiding place on the dark web. The signal was traceable, and it contained information about the server's IP address. Child's Play wasn't the only server that Einar had been able to identify or, or to locate. He had also located one in France and one in Germany, two other child abuse websites on the darknet using the same technique that he had used to locate the server in Australia. Wow. Yes. Neither the German nor the French leads came through, so he focused on the Australians. Well, I mean, it took me a couple of weeks to get in touch with, with this Australian guy, and he was, sure, come Monday, and it was Thursday here in Norway. So, um, of course, I was wondering, is Child's Play put there on this server by someone in this company? Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we didn't know. I mean, it, it's, who, who are the people behind? Uh, who is Warhead? What will happen if we alert the company or the owner or anyone else at the company about what's on this server? Will they delete it? I felt like I, I couldn't give too much information about uh, at all to the owner or to anyone there until I met them face to face. So you bought some plane tickets? 
Yes. It's January 20th and it's a blizzard in Oslo that morning when I'm uh, walking up to the bus stop to take the bus to, to, to the airport. So I'm really struggling with uh, with a suitcase, you know, in, in the snow and wind and it's, it's terrible weather. And, and while I'm walking, I get a phone call from the police who has been investigating the Norwegian that we were able to identify a couple of months earlier when we first started this research. This is the guy who was bragging about abusing a kid. Right. So this policewoman, she would just inform me that yesterday they had arrested this man. And uh, because of this, there was uh, a young child who would get a better life. Wow. Yeah. How are we feeling? I, I don't cry very often, but I did then. A little over 24 hours later, Hawken lands in Sydney and makes his way to Digital Pacific, the hosting facility. They had offices very close to to the Opera House uh, in a high-rise there. It's a typical server farm, nondescript office space, and rooms with row after row of server stacks. So this is our data center. We have about 2,000 servers in this facility here. Hawkins got a meeting with the company's owner. The internet, this is where the cloud lives. So when you a guy named Andrew Culloden. You were saying this is where the cloud is? Uh, this is where the cloud is, yes. Yeah, and this is where Dorset is also? Uh... not sure what to expect. So I... I went there and, and I told them that we are investigating child abuse websites on the darknet and that we had found that one of the main websites was stored on the server that they had and that I needed them to tell me who had rented the server because they were probably the people who were running the website and the administrators. How did he react? <laughs> I'd prepared a long speech. If he denies, if he says this, I will say this. I, I had really prepared this this talk with him. But... but uh... I felt like he, he thought I was running the operation. <laughs> you got to admit, you had that in you as well when you first came, right? Well, I mean, you thought you'd that. caught the criminal. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out Hawken didn't need that speech. Culloden tells Hawken to pull up a chair. He said, I'm just as interested as you in knowing who this is and to get to the bottom of this. And uh, come sit beside me and, and we'll take a look and, at uh, who's uh, rented this server. Were you yeah. kind of surprised? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> so he pulled up some files and uh, took a look at it together. It's a customer registry, I guess. And he could see that uh, this server had been rented since 2014. And then we saw some messages by, by the customer. Uh, customer Customer service? Yes, customer service. Because they thought that this person who was renting the server was a bit um, peculiar. They, they, they couldn't find out his identity. Hmm. So this customer service person, he wrote in, in a message, sketchy looking ID has been submitted and customer is withholding information towards their project. Hmm. So the customer service guy, he had seen this and thought, you know, okay, something's fishy going on here. Who is this guy who wants to rent the server and, and why? Why do they want to rent it? Mm-hmm. 
So he sent a, a message and he tried to call this guy, but he didn't answer. And the same day, they get a, an email from the people who want to rent this server. And it says, you can contact Mr. Paul Griffiths at Task Force Argos, as he will verify the validity of our presence. And that's when we knew who these people were. Who were they? Task Force Argos. They are worldwide celebrities, sort of, in the law enforcement community. They're if, cops. Yeah, they're cops. It's the police. I'd gone down to Australia to find out who Warhead is, and all of a sudden I find out that Warhead is the police. Hawken and Einar had stumbled on a major undercover operation. Which brings us back to the guys in the hamburger joint, John and Paul. So you're in Brisbane. I'm in Brisbane. It's hot. It's hot. And um, I'm waiting to meet, uh, to meet some police officers. I mean, they definitely look like police officers with their white shirts and their ties. You know, the way they're walking, they, they feel very confident. You can see that they're confident and they know what they're doing. Were you intimidated at all? Not by them. But I was a bit surprised that they wanted to talk to me, wanted to take me out to have lunch outside the, uh, the police headquarters because I told them that I got some information that I need to talk to you about. So I was hoping that we could meet at an office inside the headquarters. So uh, you guys went out for lunch then? We went for lunch to this noisy burger bar. I was looking around me and, and, you know, is this the place where I'm going to have to tell them that we know what they're doing? Um, And that's what I had to do. So finally they asked me why I'm here. Why why do I want to talk to them? I, I tell them that I know that they're the ones who are running this website and and Paul uh, one of the guys he just turns purple and quiet and John the other guy he turns completely white and gets real stiff and upright and stern and says we're not going to discuss this anymore until I know how you have found this information how you knew it was us Hunting Warhead is written and produced by Chris Oak and me, Damon Fairless. The series is co-produced by Halkin Hoidel and associate producer Mikhail Arana. Sound design by Cecil Fernandez. Emily Cannell is our digital producer. Original music by Olivia Pascarelli. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer, and our executive producer is Arif Norani. Hunting Warhead is a co-production of CBC Podcasts and the Norwegian newspaper VG. Coming up on Hunting Warhead. Now we knew that Warhead, he's the police. So we could track this operation from our computers uh, sitting here in Norway. But the police didn't create the site. So that's when he found one article about three men charged in Virginia. It was just sort of one loud bang. Then all I could hear were dogs barking and people just screaming in terror.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.